We're talking about Satan and Satanism number six, and our topic this afternoon, Satan's defeat and final doom. Satan's defeat and final doom, and we'll spend the whole time talking about that. And my text will be John 12, 31 to 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The Bible teaches, and we'll, we'll be looking at a number of passages. <clears throat> the Bible teaches that Jesus defeated Satan at the cross, achieving a definitive victory, a perfect victory, that would guarantee the successful of the gospel on planet earth and the victory of Christ's kingdom among the nations. When I say definitive victory, I mean the war's been won, but Satan is not cast into the lake of fire until the second coming. The devil has been limited at the cross in a certain way so that he can no longer deceive the nations as he once did, and we'll see this as we study these passages. In Genesis 3.15, this victory was prophesied by God to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan will be strongly opposed to the woman, that is the elect woman, or believing woman, and her seed, the, the, the line that produced Jesus Christ. While the hatred between the devil and God's people is general, the seed that crushes Satan had, Satan's head most certainly is Jesus Christ. All commentators agree, all scholars agree. It's a prophecy, in fact it's called the Proto-Evangelium. Christ will be victorious. <clears throat> the spiritual conflict between the kingdom of Satan and God's kingdom that began in Eden thousands of years ago came to a climax when the Son of God assumed a human nature, Philippians chapter 2, was born in Bethlehem, left a, led a sinless, perfect life, and died as an atoning sacrifice at the cross. Satan excuse me, Jesus Christ came to defeat Satan and his purposes. And this could only occur by paying the penalty for sin, defeating death and the curse, binding Satan and his forces, and establishing the kingdom of God with power by the resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. And later we'll be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 12, which goes into quite a bit of detail about this. <clears throat> Jesus says the second Adam send, sends his spirit into men's hearts so they can feel, fulfill their calling to subdue the earth under Christ. That's what Adam was supposed to do, but he fell into sin. And then the world became evil. But Christ is going to undo that, and the second Adam will undo that. They will enable men to subdue the earth under Christ, develop a Christian culture, restore societies to God's covenant and moral law and work to develop godly dominion over every nation on earth. <clears throat> Look up these later. Matthew 28, 18-20. See Isaiah 2, 2-3. Isaiah 11, 4, and 13-15. And 65, 20-23. Malachi 1, 11. Psalm 2, Psalm 72, 10, 11, and 17. Psalm 110, 1 and following. Zechariah 14, 16-17, etc. When Jesus instructed his disciples about his coming crucifixion, 
He said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and if I am lifted up of the, from the earth, it will draw all people to myself. John 12, 31-32. And this statement is amazing. With the crucifixion of Jesus and the exaltation, there is a judgment of the world. By the death of Christ, the satanic world order has been defeated. The whole order of things that existed prior to Christ's redemptive work, where Satan and his demons controlled the whole earth, outside of that tiny little nation of Israel, is coming to an end. God, due to Jesus' sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, will no longer leave all the Gentile nations in the hands of the devil and the powers of darkness. The gospel will go to every nation, and all nations will be discipled unto the Redeemer. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. The world, the kingdom is moving from a tiny little nation in Israel to the whole world. As the gospel goes forth and people are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they will believe in the Savior and will bow the knee to Christ. Satan has been defeated at the cross, and his domination, his dominion, has been spoiled. The days of paganism, false religions, and idolatry are numbered, because when Christ died, the current order of things received its sentence of condemnation. Not at the second coming, that's when things are completed, but at the first coming. And now progressively Christ is taken over planet earth by the sword that proceeds from his mouth, the sharp sword. As a consequence of this judgment, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And this calls to mind Jesus' words in Luke 10.18 after the 70 gospel preachers returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Verse 17. And he said to them, and this anticipates the cross, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan is thrown out of heaven in a swift, dramatic manner. The devil's defeat, <coughs> described as falling or being cast out in Matthew, is also described as binding the strong man, 1229. The purpose is to plunder Satan's house, which refers to the spread of the gospel where the devil's disciples and the kingdom is replaced by, with Christ's saints in godly dominion. Paul concurs, saying, Colossians 2.15, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And speaking of Jesus' glorification, the apostle adds this, which the wicked, excuse me, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him as a right, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That's Ephesians 1, 20 to 21. The devil is a defeated foe, and he's been defeated by Christ. God the Father and the Son of God have always had authority over creation, Satan, and the demonic hosts. God could have crushed Satan at any time. But in his plan, 
It had to be Christ. But due to Christ's redemptive work, as the theanthropic mediator, that is the divine human mediator, the Savior, Christ at his resurrection receives all authority for the purpose of the salvation of the elect and the recreation of the whole fallen order. The world had fallen. The first Adam had failed. The second Adam undoes what Satan did. It had to be by Christ. It had to be by the God-man, the mediator. Satan is bound with chains at the resurrection. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next week, Revelation 20. For everything he accomplished by causing mankind to fall and rebel against God will be overturned by the redemptive work of Christ. The devil is still active after the cross and empty tomb, but he is restrained. So the gospel can leaven planet earth until all is leavened, Matthew 13.33. And the tiny mustard seed will become a great tree, Matthew 13.31-32. The fact that Jesus invaded Satan's kingdom, was casting out demons, and was taking over the devil's possessions, that is, his areas of rule, dominion, and control, proves, Jesus says, that the kingdom of God has come. The stone has struck the image, the great satanic empires, and will become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. The realm of Satan's rule and influence will be taken over by Christ and his people. Daniel 2.34-35 So Christ won the war over Satan and his forces at the cross. For the foundation of salvation and the spiritual restoration of all things was accomplished once and for all at the, empty, the cross and the empty tomb. It had to be that way. The second Adam is victorious. The first Adam had failed. And remember, he was tempted in the desert. Adam was tempted in paradise. Jesus was tempted after fasting for 40 days. But the application of that perfect redemption in history is progressive. And it is not completed until the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 51-55, John eleven twenty five. the creation of the new heavens and the new earth in which no evil, sorrow, or death occurs, 2 Peter 3, 10-13, Revelation 21, 1-7, and the beginning of the final state, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and Revelation 22, 3-4. When Jesus returns, there shall be no more curse. Revelation 22.3 So when he returns, where were the devil and the demons and all the followers of Satan? Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, where were they all be cast? Into the lake of fire and brimstone. That's when the final state begins. Satan has been defeated. He's been limited. But he's still active. But the second coming that victory becomes completed in history. Because of what our Lord accomplished, Christians are free of satanic bondage and the fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14-15 Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might <coughs> destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and release those who through fear of bondage were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2.14-15 Because of the bloody cross and the fact that our Lord conquers Satan death and death, nothing, not even physical death, can separate us from the love of God, who is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39. 
With regard to believers, Jesus took the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, and death, as Satan's weapon, out of the devil's hands. Unbelievers, however, face eternal death, which is also called the second death, Revelation 20, verse 6 and 14 and 21, verse 8, and the full curse of God's law, Ezekiel 18.4, Romans 6.23, Revelation 20, verse 14. What a blessing. Should Christians be optimistic? Absolutely. Should Christians be all defeatist because the world's such a mess? No. Have faith. There is victory. It is progressive. Sometimes it's not as good as it could be because the church is uh, backslidden and the church adopts false eschatologies and doctrines. But Christ will be victorious. The ejection from Satan from heaven in Revelation 12 gives us even more details. I'm going to read 7 to 11, but I'll discuss pretty much the whole chapter. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then he heard a loud voice in saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night, <coughs> has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not their love their own lives to the death. In this scene, the victory of the saints over Satan is explained. Now remember, Revelation is not chronological. Revelation contains recapitulations where he'll discuss something, then he'll discuss the same events from a different perspective. And so we're, we're talking about Christ's victory at the cross and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God. People who try to view Revelation chronologically get the book totally wrong. Well, it contains a number of crucial truths. Number one, there is a war in heaven by Michael and his angels and Satan and his forces. The battle is initiated by Michael. The name Michael, which means who is like God, refers to the leader of the good angels. Now, there are two interpretations about Michael in this passage. One is that Michael refers to Jesus Christ. That's John Gill, John Calvin, some of the older guys. It refers to either Christ himself or to Michael, the archangel, who is sent by the glorified Redeemer as the warrior and protector of the saints. <coughs> like I said, a number of scholars believe that Michael refers to Christ, and that's John Calvin and John Gill. The conception of Michael and his angels sounds like a parallel to the coming of the Son of Man with his angels in Matthew 16.27 and C24.31 and Mark 8.38. Now, even if one holds that Michael is not Christ, but an archangel, which is the majority interpretation, this great holy angel was sent by the resurrected divine human mediator and was carrying out the Redeemer's orders. And we say, based on what? Based on Christ's salvation victory. 
He achieved the victory. Now he's in charge of heaven and earth as the mediator. Not simply as the son of God, but as the divine human mediator. And now he tells Satan, get out. Very interesting. As the victor due to the cross and empty tomb, Jesus orders the armies of heaven to cast out Satan and all the demonic hosts out of heaven. In the book of Daniel, Michael is, and this is directly a quote from Daniel, one of the chief princes in heaven who had to come and help other mighty, the other mighty angel, Gabriel, to defeat the powerful demon that was in charge of the nation of Persia, the empire of Persia. Daniel 10, 13, and 20. We see that the demonic forces not only work intimately in pagan nations, but they apparently also have geographical assignments, national assignments, just like generals in human warfare, in human armies. There's also a, de a demon over the nation of Greece that is mentioned in Daniel. Very interesting. In Isaiah 14.32, the angels or messengers of the nation are mentioned. Interestingly, Jesus mentions that he could summon 12 legions of angels to come to his defense during his arrest, Matthew 26.53. The word legion, and I forgot to look up, I think that's what, 12,000? It's, I forget how, it's a, it's a bunch. It's a, I forgot to look up the number. The word legion is a Latin loan word based on the organization of the Roman army. That's where the word comes from. The Greek simply transliterates it from the Latin into Greek. The biblical concept of a heavenly host occurs in Luke 2.13, of course, celebrating the birth of Christ, and also see Acts 7.32. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the expression army of heaven, stratia, ta, Urenu occurs frequently. Jeremiah 19.13, Hosea 13.4, 2 Chronicles 33.3 and 5, and Nehemiah 9.6, etc. Now the ancient Jews, and we're talking, if you look at the intertestamental literature and other literature from the ancient Jews way back, believe there were four archangels, which they called angels of the presence, due to their closeness to God in the heavenly throne room. Michael, the archangel, was regarded as the first of the angels, being the most powerful once Satan had fallen. So you often see Michael, you know, here, here's Gabriel, who's an archangel, he's super powerful, but he needs the help of Michael. In Jude 9, Michael, the archangel, argued with Satan about the body of Moses. Instead of reviling the devil, he said, the Lord rebuke you. This indicates that the holy angels act on behalf of God and carry out his purposes. Okay, it's not a personal thing with the angels. They're acting on behalf of God. The word angel also means messenger. They're God's messengers. The limited information we have in Scripture about the battles between the good angels and the fallen evil demons indicates that there is much going on in the incorporeal realm of which we are, un of which we are not aware there's a whole other world that we cannot see with warfare, in battles. The Bible doesn't tell us much because we don't really need to know that much. We just need to know that it's there. But it's pretty amazing to think about it. It also tells us that even in the angelic realm, God has chosen not to work only immediately, through, directly through his power, but also immediately through his angels. Now that that 
demon over Persia. God could have squatted him like a fly. Or the demon over uh, Greece could have been swatted like a fly. But God sends Gabriel. I mean, God sends Michael to help Gabriel. God works immediately through his angels. And of course, angels, we see angels often comforting Jesus during his ministry, coming to him. They're very active and they're very concerned about his church and his people. And him, of course. <clears throat> this teaching helps us understand Paul's statement that we are in a war against, quote, this is Ephesians 6.12, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're in a war. And one of the purposes of preaching these sermons is that we realize what's going on. We understand the unseen realm, and, and it, it does affect us. And then number two. Satan and his demonic hordes are defeated and cast out of heaven to the earth. The great battle between the good angels and the evil spirits that began with the fall of Satan and the, and the fall of mankind into sin came to a head when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. The judicial foundation for the restoration of all things had been achieved at the cross and the empty tomb. The devil and his followers have suffered a critical and a definitively fatal setback due to the Son's successful redemptive mission. That's why this great battle at casting out occurs precisely at this time. Satan was active all throughout the Old Testament. Prior to the flood, the only he had one family. God only had one family that was faithful. The whole rest of the earth was wicked and there was violence everywhere. Kind of like San Francisco and New York today. And this teaching is established by verse 5 where the male child is caught up to God, resurrection and ascension, and is thrown, the theanthropic mediator's kingship over heaven and earth, in order to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The risen Savior is now plundering Satan's household. He goes forth and he conquers the nations by the sharp sword, the word of God, that comes out of his mouth. And he has the authority to strike rebellious nations with his rod of judgment. Revelation 9.15. And once again, when I was a premillennialist, when I was an evangelical, I was taught that that referred to the second coming. Absolutely not. There's recapitulation in the book of Revelation. That is Christ going forth, riding to conquer the earth with the word of God. How can you take a sword coming out of his mouth literally? No. The sword, according to the New Testament, refers to the sharp two-edged sword, the word of the living God. The gospel and the word. The destruction of persecuting Israel and later on Rome are examples of his sovereign control and power. So he conquers through the gospel. As he changes men's hearts, he regenerates hearts, causes people to stop serving Satan, to start serving him. And he judges with a rod of iron. The Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, ancient Rome. Why, do, why have all these pagan empires risen and fallen into obscurity and been crushed? Well, the rod of the Christ rod of iron. The purpose of the incarnation was not only to save the church, the elect, or Christ's sheep from every nation, but also to destroy Satan's worldwide kingdom of evil and oppression. It was on the cross of Calvary that Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers, Colossians 2.14 and following. When our Lord came out of the tomb victorious over the curse and death itself, he triumphantly proved his victory over the forces of darkness. 
Beloved, the resurrection is the turning point of all human history. Now, I know that the old Roman Catholic monks uh, divided history by the birth of Christ. And, and our calendars used to say B.C. and A.D., where history separated by the birth of Christ. It would have been more, and they, got, they were off by about four years. Christ was born about 4 B.C. But it would have been even more appropriate to divide all of human history pre-resurrection, post-resurrection. Because we're in a, the new covenant technically begins with the re- resurrection. His, the resurrection is the turning point in all human history for it authenticated the Redeemer's cosmic conquest and began the spiritual conquest of planet Earth. Jesus, sitting at the right hand of power, did not merely judge persecuting Rome but by his word and spirit turned pagan Rome into Christian Europe. Pagan Rome, full of slavery and oppression and poverty and horrible things. They were, they were a wicked empire that conquered other nations and slaughtered people for money, became Christian Europe. Now, Christian Europe was far from perfect, and of course the Roman Catholic Church had a lot of bad doctrine and problems. But slavery was abolished, at least for a time. And it's really sad. It shows how wicked our culture and society is, and Europe is. All the universities and colleges, which used to say B.C. and A.D., have switched. They got rid of that because it was acknowledging the Lordship of Christ. And they switched to before the Common Era and after the Common Era. Why did they make that up? Why did they make up the before the Common Era and after the Common Era? They didn't want to acknowledge the fact that Jesus and his redemptive work is the turning point of all human history. They didn't want to acknowledge that. Atheistic pigs, Satanists. For Satan, the demons and the forces of evil, the war has already been lost. The spread of the gospel and the leavening of planet Earth with Christ's kingdom cannot be stopped. That is, Jesus spoke to the apostles about the success and power of the church militant, saying, Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is the church. Christ's victory and his own prophecy tells us not to view the church as a weak outpost under siege by the forces of evil. But rather, now, we're going to look at Revelation 20, where at the end, right before the second coming, God's going to let Satan uh, out of this restriction for a while, and there's going to be a, a, a great battle. But we're talking about no, now, normally. The church is not a weak outpost under the siege of the forces of evil, but rather is, is a powerful army besieging the main city and headquarters of Satan. The devil, his, his demonic hordes and their human followers, cannot succeed against the onslaught of the church of Christ. The people of God are supposed to be the aggressors spiritually. They are to take the initiative due to the great victory of the cross and the empty tomb. The foundation of success has already been achieved. The victorious Redeemer sends his spirit into the church, empowering it. And his continued intercession for the saints protects it. Does this mean that the church will not have any opposition or setbacks? No. The devil's power is restrained, but he is still active, corrupting churchmen, spreading heresy, inciting persecution. Why did Western Europe, why did Europe 
and the United States become apostate? Well, it was largely the church's fault. The church went apostate. And when all the mainline churches went apostate, and there were just these, in the fundamental, the so-called fundamentalist evangelicals got rid of Calvinism, which is the, the gospel, and they adopted all these negative eschatologies of defeat, and they believed that God's law didn't apply to society anymore. God's moral law did, should, did not apply to society. Uh, they handed the robes of society over to Satanists. It's their fault. But Christ's promises will be fulfilled. There will be revival. There will be a great revival. And Christianity will once again dominate the nations. Satan is on earth still, opposing Christ's kingdom and people. But he will not be successful. The church will be victorious in Christ. As Paul says, Philippians 4.13, I am strong enough for everything in him who strengthens me. Now, due to Jesus' victory over sin and the devil, there is to be an incredible development of Christianity in the world. Now, keep in mind, we're looking at things after the Enlightenment, after there was a great fall into apostasy throughout many nations. But don't judge all the history by that. The progress of the gospel was continuous and amazing uh, since the days of the apostles. It's been amazing. And there will be a reformation and revival. Just wait. You know, Europe was under the darkness of Roman Catholicism, which is totally satanic and idolatrous. And God turned that around within one generation through Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Zwingli, and John Knox. Christians are to live for Christ and apply the whole counsel of God to every area of their lives. As they are sanctified personally and have dedicated Christian families, they are to leaven their callings and culture itself with the teaching of God's word. Human existence, which had formerly been controlled by the devil and worldviews of darkness, oppression, and deception, are to be salted with the word and sanctified for the king over kings. I feel so sorry for people. Now, they're, they deserve it. They're guilty. But can you imagine being a Democrat and believing in all those lies and all that nonsense and believing in socialism and statism and the state is God and it's okay to murder your babies and it's okay to live as a sec pervert like a dog? These things are crazy. They're in darkness. They're totally oppressed by the devil. Christ has set us free. We must appreciate that. Not only religion, but also politics, education, economics, philosophy, science, and the arts are to be transformed by the Christian world and life view so that our dear Savior is honored and glorified in every sphere of existence. This God-given responsibility is every Christian's job, even in times of declension and setback. During the dark days, of Jewish and Roman persecution. The church still was victorious due to Christ's redemptive work. Revelation 12, verse 11. And they overcame him, and it's talking about Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their own lives even to the death. And then number three. Satan's accusation against God's people no longer have any force. Verses 10 to 11. Negatively, the accuser of our brethren is cast down. Verse 10. Positively, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2, 3. The new covenant era is superior to the old. 
because he continues forever. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. He continues forever and has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And for these reasons, Paul could say, Romans 8, 33, 35, and 37, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul lived in a time of persecution. All the apostles were killed and murdered through persecution, except for John. And he spent a bunch of years on Patmos in prison. Did they have a negative defeatist attitude? No. They preached the victory of Christ. The victory of Christ over the nations in line with the Old Testament prophets. And then number four. Even though Satan was defeated by Christ and his power is now restrained, he comes down with great anger and ferociously persecutes the church for a limited time, verses 12 to 13. He resorts to political and religious persecution by the apostate Jews and the heathen Romans. <clears throat> this is his pattern in history when unbelieving false prophets and political tyrants seek to stamp out Christ's church. And we're just beginning persecution in our nation, where the Democratic Party, the Satanists, are going to try to force Bible-believing Christians into praising sodomite rites, into praising sodomite marriage, into praising transvestite perversions, in praising the transgender disgusting perversion. We can't compromise with any of this. We can't compromise with the murdering of babies. We can't compromise with state schools who teach Satanism. We can't compromise with a state who believes it has the right to make up its own laws and can ignore the law of God. The saints have victory. But this does not mean that persecution no longer exists. Revelation 12.11 tells us, And they overcame him, that is Satan, who had been cast down by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their own lives to the death. Jesus' victory is our victory. And positionally, we're told in Ephesians 1, we're seated at the right hand of God with Christ in the heavenly places. We have victory in Christ. He's the foundation of our sanctification. He's the foundation of our justification. And we rule with him as kings and priests right now. And even through persecution, we still rule. We still have victory. His blood cleanses us from all sin and guilt, 1 John 1, 9. We are responsible to confess him before men no matter what, Matthew 10, 32. And faithfully keep the covenant, our testimony, remembering Jesus' words. John 12, 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. Many Christians are also delivered by God into the wilderness. Verse 14. Now, Satan's not concerned with modernist liberals, Christian liberals, who are nothing but secular humanists using Christian terminology. They're totally satanic. Any church that tolerates sodomite pastors and lesbian pastors and has women preaching, which is totally unscriptural, women elders, which is totally unscriptural, they're antichrists. They side with the Democrats over abortion. They side with the communists and socialists. They side with Satan on every major issue. 
Satan isn't concerned with them. They're on the same side. But he does hate and is enraged against true believers, verse 17, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So you who deny the law of God, keeping the commandments of God is listed right there as being part of a faithful Christian. Professing Christians who reject, reject God's moral law and follow a humanistic or pagan law order. Do not threaten Satan, for they are still part of Satan's kingdom. The PCUSA, United Methodist Church, Protestant Episcopal Church, you name it. All those mainline denominations and the Roman Catholic Church, of course, are satanic to the very core. Yes, there are conservative Roman Catholics who are good on social issues. They're anti-abortion. They're fairly good on some social issues. And, they're, and they, they're fairly good in trying to keep the law of God in certain ways. But they deny justification by faith alone. They don't believe in the biblical doctrine of salvation. They deny it. They teach salvation by faith plus works. They worship idols. They worship the Virgin Mary. They pray to the Virgin Mary. They pray to the saints. They're idolaters. They're not Christians. It's a, it's a false religion. But those who believe in and love Christ, who are covenantally faithful and seek to implement a Christian law order, are a great threat to the devil's earthly power. Now, although the theology, the teaching regarding our Lord's defeat of Satan at the cross and the empty tomb, it's crystal clear, it's very clear. And I just spent, I just hit these passages very briefly. Somebody could write a very thick book on this if they wanted to. Most evangelicals following a false premillennial eschatology believe that the defeat of Satan did not actually occur, does not, will not occur until the second coming of Christ. And they've got it all wrong, and we're going to look at that next week. We're going to have to look at Romans, uh, I mean, excuse me, Revelation chapter 20 in the binding of Satan, the, the, the chaining of Satan. What does it mean? You have to interpret that within the context of Scripture. And once again, the book of Revelation is not chronological. It covers the same events over and over again from different perspectives. But we'll look at that. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord over all. Everything in heaven and earth, in heaven and on earth is under his authority. He's king of the nations. All nations, all political leaders, all heads of corporations, everyone, every religion has a moral duty to believe in him and bow the knee to him and acknowledge him as Lord, as the one who died on the cross for sin and rose from the dead victorious over Satan, sin, and death. He is the king. But we'll look at this next week. But I hope this has been helpful. I, I just think it's extremely fascinating. There's much that goes on in the incorporeal realm that we don't know about. And, you know, there's all kinds of strange things that happen. I could tell you stories I've heard from missionaries. I don't know if they're true or not. But there's very interesting things that have happened. But anyway, we'll look at this next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that Christ is the victorious king. He died on the cross, according to the scriptures, to eliminate the guilt and penalty of our sin, washing it away by his precious blood, his sinless blood. He rose from the dead, victorious over Satan's sin and death, and therefore we are no longer in bondage. And therefore, as the ascended right... At your right hand, Lord, he gave us the Holy Spirit, opened our eyes, raised our dead hearts, caused us to believe. We thank you, Lord, for that. 
And we beg you, Lord, to bend our hearts, to fill us with your spirit, so we would submit to Christ in all areas, in all areas, in all, in all, every area of our life. For we do not want to sin against our Lord. We want to be faithful. Help us to be faithful. Help us to fight against the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In Jesus' name, amen.